invite you to uh, turn to Mark chapter 14. We, we got through the Olivet Discourse. Uh, you could say we got through all of it. Yes, yes, thank you. Thank you. Okay. Mark chapter 14. Uh, I went back and forth what I wanted to call this. We could, we could call it the polarizing Christ. We could call it uh, conspiracy and consecration. What did I put up? Yeah, let's just call it conspiracy and consecration. Uh, and as you see, it will be. It says part one. We are not going to get through all of it today. Um, we'll get through probably the uh, first three verses of chapter fourteen. There, if if you look, there will be books. You you will find books. You will find blog articles. You will find seminars. You will find conferences. Uh, you will you will find entire volumes and and uh, much much commentary that has come out in uh, especially recent decades, but even uh, in the last century or two, that have tried to make Jesus and the offense and the scandal of the cross more palatable. We touched on this uh, several months back when we, when we looked at the development of um, historical criticism. There's been much effort to try to make Jesus more palatable, more appeasing to man. And some of you, if you've been in the church for, for any time, you will recall uh, in the late 90s and in the 2000s, the seeker movement that really began with uh, men like Rick Warren. It was, uh, it was an appeal to try to reach to uh, what was dubbed the unchurched people. And again, this was just the most recent and most modernized attempt to reach and to appeal to man and to make to make a Jesus that's not going to push quite so many people away. But the truth is, as one man says, the same sun that melts the snow is the sun that, melt, that hardens the clay. And we have seen that in this gospel. Every gospel demonstrates that truth, that Jesus Christ comes to all kinds of, of people, all classes of people, all ethnicities, all two genders of people, all temperaments, all kinds, and they all, every single one of them responds to Jesus Christ in one of two ways. They either accept him or they reject him. They either love him or they hate him. They either pledge their allegiance to him or they rebel against him. They either worship him or they treat him with scorn and enmity. There is a continental divide among people because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about that. The gospel does not try to apologize for that truth. And we will, we will see both extremes in this text. You're, we're really only going to see the first extreme today and we're going to spend a little more time looking at that next week as well as looking at the second extreme the five points that we can divide this text into and leslie alliteration all sees thank you thank you the conspiracy of his foes verses one and two the consecration by his friend and you'll see that's why i titled it the way i did in verse 3, the consternation or agitation or offense 
of his followers in verses 4 and 5, the commendation for his friend in verses 6 through 9, and then the crossover of the fraud in verses 10 and 11. Let's read the, the whole in its entirety. Mark writes, Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. Now while he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be spoken of in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And they were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. This chapter, chapter 14, begins with the unfolding of the conspiracy to arrest and kill Jesus. And as you have seen, assuredly, in Mark's gospel, this has been a long time coming. Things are now finally starting to come together. Elements that whose seeds were planted a long time ago are now, they have taken root and they are growing and their malicious fruit is about to be born. Mark says, now the Passover and the unleavened bread were two days away. And I just can't help but remark on the irony and the convenience that these two, uh, that this festival, these two occasions were in our daily scripture reading. It's, it is quite amazing and delightful, and it puts a smile on my face whenever uh, we are going through the text uh, here from the pulpit, and I don't have to, uh, I, I can easily just refer to something we read even this morning or last week. I love how the Word of God does that. You will know, because of what we read this morning, what the Passover commemorated. It commemorated that dreaded night in Egypt that came after a series of wonders and curses and plagues that had been released by the hand of God through his servant Moses against Pharaoh and really also against the whole of the Egyptian nation. There had been a series of plagues and curses and all the way until the 11th hour, Pharaoh stood his ground. He was arrogant, he was embittered, but he stood his ground in stubborn pride and so god sent one final plague and this one would 
unlike the others, or unlike the nine previous curses, this one would break the back of Pharaoh's pride. What was different about this final curse? God himself was coming to the land. He himself would pass through the land of Egypt. He himself would take the lives of the firstborn sons of all the people. And it didn't matter if they were rich or poor. It didn't matter if they were nobility. It didn't matter if they were slave, upper class, lower class. Everybody was applicable. Every family was applicable. But when, as we saw this morning, when God saw the blood of the lamb on the, on the two doorposts and on the lentil, of the house, which he had warned Israel to do. When he saw them act in faith and obedience, he would pass over that house, and the firstborn of that family would be spared. Now, beloved, don't miss that God has, there is much uh, imagery, there is much symbolism, there is type, uh, a typology in this. He has ordained a sacrificial lamb to be slain and for his people to respond in faithful obedience to his warning and by means of that lamb, of that spotless lamb. And when God saw the blood, he passed over them because he had reckoned a death has already occurred at this house. No more death needs to take place. Judgment has already fallen. There's no more business for me to do here. I can move on. And then when he would go to the very next house, the house of an Egyptian where there was no blood, where there was no faithful response, judgment would fall. That was the Passover. And the Passover festival commemorated that. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the the second uh, uh, feast that Mark tells us in in verse 1 of chapter 14, began the very next day and lasted a full week because it commemorated that hasty departure of Israel out from the land, out from under Pharaoh's grip. And these were essentially seen as one and the same festival, much like uh, anyone would, would really look at Christmas Eve and Christmas almost as the same event, or New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. I don't know anyone who treats them as separate things. And from the three annual feasts, the other one being Pentecost, which occurs about 49 or 50 days later, and then uh, uh, the Festival of Booths, each of, each of these three feasts, by the way, would cause Jerusalem to swell like a high-sodium diet. This one, Pentecost and Unleavened Bread, was easily, without question, it was the most important because... As we saw this morning, this was the occasion where, where God proved to the world, Israel is not just an annexed people of Egypt. Israel is God's people. That's what the Passover remembered. That's what the Passover declared. So it was kind of a big deal in Israel. Now, why does Mark tell us, why does he point out and use his precious paper and ink to tell us that the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were two days away. Well, that's because their near proximity uh, poses a problem for the chief priests and the scribes who, as he says, were trying to kill him. They are trying to seize him. They're trying to take him and arrest him and kill 
him. We should be full aware of the animosity between these two groups. They have developed between Jesus and the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees for some time, especially after what we saw in the text yesterday. I think in our sermons we would have to go back almost two months but just the previous day, if you remember, Jesus had gone into the Temple Mount. He had purged the temple. He had walked in as king. And right now, after that, after that day, the Sanhedrin is just boiling over, and they have to deal with Jesus. And so this tension, this conflict, really is a long time coming. Way back in... The early days of Jesus' ministry, we saw Jesus confront their traditions. The the traditions of the scribes and the Pharisees, he demonstrated firsthand that they didn't come from God. They came from men. He demonstrated, he showed them, proved to them how their traditions and their interpretations didn't teach the word of God. They actually contradicted the word of God. They perverted the word of God in the Old Testament. And time and time again, Jesus has demonstrated their leaders are fraudulent Men, their leaders whom they have esteemed, they loved to, to be paraded around. These leaders were frauds and cheats who didn't know the law, and they were leading the people not to the scriptures, and, but away from the scriptures. Not to God, not to love God, but away from God and to hate God. And these men did not take these accusations. They didn't take this truth coming to light lightly. All the way back in Mark 3, 6, we saw the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. And as the years go on, the roots of that enmity, the roots of that hatred and hostility only grew deeper and deeper and deeper to the point that they are now willing to commit bloodshed. And they are maliciously, as Mark tells us, they are maliciously conspiring to seize him with with deceit with underhanded they they want to take him by stealth not openly not publicly they want to seize him and they want to put him away where he cannot be a threat to them any longer church where do you think that is it's in the ground that's where it is they want to kill Six feet under, he can no longer challenge their traditions. He can no longer threaten their power. He can no longer take over their temple or lead their people. With him gone, they can be king of the hill again. And so here we are in the 11th hour. In the 11th hour and 58th minute of Jesus' ministry and life, All bets are off, no holds are barred, and in their minds, Jesus needs to die, and they are now willing to do whatever needs to be done to get him dead. The only problem is they can't act right now. Their hands are tied because the biggest festival of the year, the the commencement of the festival is two days away. And Jerusalem has already, by this point, swelled up to somewhere around 4 million people. And most of them, if not all of them, 
have thrown out the red carpet. They have welcomed him into Jerusalem. They have acknowledged him. They have praised him. They have lauded him as their long-awaited Messiah at the beginning of the week. And really, what we saw in chapters 11 and 12 only escalated, only took that even higher. And Jesus masterfully evaded and countered every single subtly laid, meticulously crafted trap by the scribes and the Pharisees and the Herodians and the and the priests. And the people saw that. The people were hanging on his every word. They were the silent witnesses the whole time. And they, they knew that these leaders abused them. And they loved it when Jesus stood up to them. They loved it that he put them in their place like a bully when he's finally caught red-handed. Those of you who can remember your school days, can remember that delight when they, when they finally got what's coming to them. Jesus was finally giving these leaders what had coming to them. And they made them look like silly little fools. I will remind you in chapter 1132 that the scribes and the Pharisees, none of this was missed on them by any means they but the problem is they couldn't do a thing publicly why is that back in 1132 mark tells us as 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 they brought their traps to him and they confronted him and he evaded and he countered and he made them look stupid mark wrote in 1132 they were being the, the chief priests the scribes and the elders they were afraid of the people they can't touch him and then in 1212 they the Sanhedrin, they were seeking to seize him because they understood he's speaking these things against them, the, the, the parable against them, and yet they feared the people. And so they left him and went away. Their hands were tied because of the people, because of the proximity of the crowd. They are surrounding Jesus. They are captivated by Jesus. It is painfully clear to these men who have murder in their hearts and rage in their eyes that they can't touch him until these people are gone. These people who are convinced he is their Messiah. These people who are utterly captivated by his words. And if the Sanhedrin so much as publicly lay a finger on him when when public opinion of him is so high, it'll be like, it'll be like, it'll be, that, that would be as, as wise as the guy who checks his gas level with a match. You just, you, you don't do that. You wait. You be patient. We see that in, at the end of verse 2. We can't touch him now. Not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. They must wait until the entire festival is over and this four million man crowd who is enthusiastic about Jesus, they must wait until these people leave and disperse and go back to their homes. Then, when everyone is gone and Jesus is vulnerable, when Jesus is alone again and all he has really are those 12 paltry men, those, four, those, those 12 Galilean fishermen, his disciples, when, when all he has is them, then they'll make their move. Then they'll grab Jesus. 
but not before. That is the conspiracy of the Lord's foes. Then it is immediately followed in Mark's passage with the consecration by his friend in verse 3. The conspiracy of his foes and now the consecration by his friend. Now, this doesn't jump off the page, but Mark is employing a little bit of artistic license in, in the narrative. And you may ask, well, how do you know? Why is he doing that? Well, John, by the way, Matthew and John and Mark all cover this event. Luke's the only one who, who doesn't include it. John's passage uh, in John 12, 1 through 8, John tells us that this event took six days before the Passover. However, Mark places it here. You may ask, why does he do that? It's kind of confusing. Well, I think the answer is, is that what happens in verses 3 through 9 will show itself to be the final straw for one among the twelve. Who is that? Judas. What is going to happen in verses 3 through 9 is going, to, is going to be too much. It is going to be the final straw for Judas. Now, you know that there have been a number of shocking things that Jesus has said in his ministry. There have been a number of things that, where he has turned their perspective. He has turned the way that they look at things. He has turned their value system on its head upside down. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. This temple, the day is coming where it is all coming down. There have been a number of challenging things that Jesus has said to these disciples. And what is about to happen will be too much. It, 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 is, it is the last straw. Judas will not be able to take it anymore. This will, he will conclude, this is no longer a, G, a Christ that I can get behind. He must be a fraud. And he will break camp, and he will break the relationship with Jesus forever. And maybe some of you can, can, um, can relate to that when you have a friend or perhaps a family member or an associate or a coworker, and they say something that is so shocking. They, they, they have tested your patience before. They have pushed the envelope. They have, they have tested the limits of your charity and of your patience, of your grace. But then there's something they say, there's something they do that forever, it, that is a forever severance of the relationship, and you, you, you can't resume fellowshipping with that person. This is going to be what that is for Judas. And Mark puts this here, because had he not included it, and you get to verse 10, which if he doesn't put these verses in, then I guess verse 10 would become verse 3. But you get to the part where Judas breaks camp and leave, and without this explanation, you, you would wonder, well, that kind of escalated quickly. Why did he do that? Where, where did this betrayal come from? I think these verses explain where his betrayal came from. These verses explain why Judas had a change in heart, and a ch which resulted and demonstrated itself in a change of action. And really, if you think about it, especially when you look at John's uh, commentary on Judas, it's not really a change of heart. It's just what's in his heart is finally coming to the surface, and he's being true with himself. So going back to verse 3, Mark says, while he was in 
Bethany. Bethany is where all the Gospels say that he stayed during his Passion Week. And Bethany is just a short walk over the Mount of Olives. It's not even two miles to the east, uh, slightly to the northeast of Jerusalem. We saw it back in chapter 11, verse 1, as Jesus came into the scene, he, he has finally reached Jerusalem after, after marching towards it for some time. He, he entered Bethany at the beginning of the week, and he would go in daily into Jerusalem. He would go there with the twelve. And we saw that in verse, uh, uh, chapter 11, verse 11, that when it was late, he would leave and go back to Bethany when, with the twelve. And we know the Sanhedrin are trying to kill him and, ca- and capture him by stealth and secretly. So no wonder he's going to leave when it gets dark. And where is he in Bethany? He is at the home of Simon the leper. Now, here, and in Matthew 26, are the only times this man is mentioned in Scripture. And there are only two things beyond his name. There are only two things we know for certain about this man. One, he was a leper. And two, he had a house in Bethany. That's it. Everything else uh, is going to be an assumption. And there are a number of assumptions, and I believe them to be plausible, uh, reasonable, that we're going to make about Simon the leper. And I am not just pulling stuff out of my hat there. I have consulted other what other preachers have had to say. I have consulted other commentaries. And so this isn't just somewhere out of left field when I, when I make these plausible uh, assumptions. One, and this is, this is guaranteed. This is, a, this is a very safe assumption. He was at one time a leper who has now been healed. By the time we read this passage, if he was still a leper, he wouldn't allow to be in his home. He would have to be outside of town. He would have to be isolated. And whenever he went near anybody, you know what? He would have to yell with his gravelly, decaying voice if he even still has the means to yell. What did he have to say? Unclean. That way people knew to steer clear of this fellow. And so the reasonable presumption is, is he's no longer a leper. It just doesn't really seem to go with, with Jesus's MO to to use a guy's house, but to leave him rotting outside of camp. He's, he's, he's likely been healed and restored to society, restored to his family, and he's likely presently here in his house hosting this dinner for Jesus and his disciples. I, I, that is a 99.999% fair assumption to make. Another very fair assumption to make is that it is Jesus who has probably healed Simon. I mean, all, we know all the disciples were given the authority to heal, to heal leprosy. But at this point, the focus has, put, has gone back to Jesus. And it is probably him who has healed this man. And if that is the case, then this dinner would be one of many demonstrations of gratitude and appreciation that he is showing the Lord for his life being given back to him, being restored to his family, uh, having his family restored to him so that his wife wouldn't be a widow. We, we've already... We've already looked in previous chapters uh, what it was like for widows. Remember, the scribes just loved to prey on the widows. So his wife wouldn't have to be a widow, and his, father, his uh, children wouldn't have to be orphans. This just was, it was an incredible mercy, if indeed it happened, which I think it did. This was an incredible mercy to have this man restored to his family and allowed back into society. Now, the third assumption I'm going to make... I don't know how sure this is. I'd like to think it's true, and it is possible. 
we'll just chalk it up as a maybe. It is possible that Simon is a relative. Probably, If he is a relative, he's probably the father of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now, why do I say that? In Luke 10.38, Martha welcomes Jesus into her home in Bethany. That would be the, his first time coming to Bethany. And Martha welcomes Jesus into her home. And if you recall, even in, in Mark's gospel, when Jesus commissioned his disciples and he sent them out, he told them, when you go into a home, if they receive you, what did he say? Was that? Stay there. You, so if someone in a meager house lets you, lets you stay there, they set you they uh, set you up with with accommodations. Uh, you know, they feed you. They they give they put a roof over your head. But then this guy with a with a two story house, in a lot three times as big and better food, because he's wealthier, and he has more accommodations. He you know he wants to let you stay in his house. You don't leave the the paltry house to go live in the mansion. You stay. If if a house receives you, stay there. Because he didn't want the implication or the appearance to be that the gospel was for sale, that favors could be bought. And that's also a good principle for, for ministers as well, not to be concerned about what you get. And so that's what he told the disciples. Now, we would assume that Jesus practiced what he preached, right? What, isn't it a safe assumption, safe bet to think that Jesus applied the same principle to himself? So if if earlier in Luke 10, which certainly happened before this late hour in Mark, if earlier he comes when he comes into Bethany, he is welcomed into into Martha's house, which would be Martha, Mary, and Lazarus's house, it is safe to assume that every time he returns to Bethany, he's going to go to that house. And so that would be where he is now, only this time it's not called Martha's house, it's called Simon's house, which would imply in some way he, that Simon would be related to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And because they are often uh, mentioned in conjunction as siblings, and Simon never is, it, I think it's a safe assumption he's their father. But if you disagree with me, that's fine. I don't want to get any emails. So, and by the way, in John's account, all three of those, of the, those siblings... Lazarus, Martha, and Mary are all there. Martha, Lazarus is reclining at the table with Jesus. Uh, you know, he, he, was, he was risen from the dead, so he's kind of a center of conversation for the last week. Uh, Martha, as, as per, do the course, she is occupying herself with serving. And then we'll, we're going to see in a second what Mary's doing. And so this is the scene. This is the final week of the Lord's life. He's enjoying... A very personable and a very intimate meal with good friends, as I just tried to argue. And the conversation is not dull and boring. The conversation is engaging. Because there is absolutely no shortage of things that could be discussed. I mean, just think of, you know, not only has Lazarus, the man sitting at the table, come back from the dead. That's not something that happens every day. Not only that... But just in the last three days, Jesus has strolled into town, and unlike the first three years of his public ministry, he is now welcoming people to, to publicly acknowledge him as the what? The Messiah, the Christ, the Son of David, the King. 
He's not hiding that anymore. He's no longer telling people, go and tell no one. Keep this to yourself. He's now welcoming it. He's now encouraging it. He's accepting it. And he's accepting the praise and the, and the lauding and the adulation of the people. He just walked into downtown Judea, into Jerusalem, and into the temple. And he set himself up. In the eyes of the people, he has set himself up. He is the teacher. He is the one that the people should be looking to, not the scribes. He is the teacher of Israel. Not the scribes, not the Pharisees, not the priests. He is the one that the people should be listening to. He is the one that the people should be looking to. He is the one who is going to dispense the word of the Lord to them. Not, not, not these frauds. Not these pretenders. Not these false shepherds. He is the shepherd that God has appointed. He is the shepherd that God has approved. He's also the the worker, the, the, the miracle worker that God has empowered. And he is not only that, he is the king. He has rightful claim to the throne of David. And if he's going to fulfill what Daniel 7 says, he is going to be given a kingdom, a kingdom that's been given to him by the ancient of days, a kingdom that's not going to fade away, a kingdom that's not going to be destroyed, a kingdom that's not going to end. Those, you know what that means. Those, those Romans, they're finally going to be kicked out. And those scribes and those priests and those Pharisees, they're not the big cheese anymore. Jesus is. And so everyone is anticipating reform and prosperity is on the horizon. Jesus is going to make Israel great again. And that's, that's the scene. That's, that is the anticipation. That's the atmosphere. That's the attitude. It is, it is a good time to be close with Jesus, to be eating a meal with Jesus. And so here they are. They are enjoying a relaxing meal together. And, and one thing I love about Jewish culture is that the Jews had no concept of fast food. Meals, meals were a time where you hung your hat up. And you took your boots off if they had, well, you took your sandals off. And you let your hair down, so to speak, if whatever hair you have. And you would, you would social, you know, you, you wouldn't have your phone out. You would socialize with one another. You would talk about what's going on, what happened today, what happened last week, what's going on in your family. You, you, would, you would socialize, you would invest with, with friends and family. And, and we see that reflected in the, in the phrase, uh, in, in, the, in the posture which describes meals as they were enjoyed with family. What does he say? What, what is he doing? Reclining at the table. That was an idiom. That's a phrase to mean they're eating a meal. They were reclining at the table. And as, they are, as they're talking and eating and laughing and eating a little more and celebrating and, oh, I've got to try some of that, and then reminiscing and, and oh, I've got to try some of that too, Mark tells us, in the midst of, the, of that delightful scene. In, in, light of, in the midst of those good memories being made. There came a woman. Now, Mark does not identify her. But if you look down at verse 9, 
what this woman has done, and we're going to look at this next week in greater detail, what this woman has done will be spoken of in memory of her. Now, her name is never given in the passage, but doesn't, that, doesn't a, a statement like that, when, when Jesus says what, sh, what, what she has done will be spoken of in memory of her, if she was just some random unidentified woman who just came on the scene, and you were one of the 12 and you just heard what Jesus said, doesn't that kind of, doesn't what Jesus said kind of beg the question, well, Jesus, what's her name? So we can remember her and what she did. I think, the, I think a very reasonable assumption is, is that she was known to the group. And when we, when we take John's account, John 12, 3, John tells us this is Mary. Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. There are a gajillion Marys in the New Testament. This is Mary, the sister of Lazarus and, Mar- and Martha. I ha- there might have been another Mary in, in, in the siblings. I don't know. But the question is, is why would Mark omit her name if, if she was indeed this cherished, precious, close associate of Jesus and the disciples? Well, my, my thought is that likely Christian persecution in the early church that first came from the Jews but would later go on to include the Gentiles and the Romans, Christian persecution made the, the early Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, much more selective about who they would publicly name as they are chronicling where Jesus went and what he did and who he spoke with and who converted to him. They would be very selective and they would be very careful whether to say or whether to omit given names. And some of you who have friends or family or associates in non-Christian areas who have very, where, where the prevalent view or attitude is very unchristian, like China, you would, you, the, the, the worst thing you could do is if you have a Christian friend there, the worst thing you could do is, is say publicly out loud something that would give away that they are a Christian. That would put a target on their back. You wouldn't just flippantly throw out the, the identities of fellow believers in that kind of an atmosphere. You, 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 would, take a, you would have to employ a sense of, of thought and reason and wisdom and prudence in, in what you disclose. And so why then does John include her name? John is written, uh, is the last gospel to writ- be written. It's written in the mid-80s. Most believe, most conservative scholars think, when many, if not most, of the names uh, that you read in the gospel, they have passed on by now. And did you know that dead people don't have to worry about Christian persecution? And you may recall John. Uh, you can see a, a good example of that in John three. Who comes to visit Jesus secretly at night? Who? John three. Nick, come on, Nick at night. We all, we all know that. Nick, Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees. He, Jesus called him the teacher of Israel. I mean, he's pretty up there in the upper echelons of, of the teachers, of the rulers of Israel. He, and he comes to Jesus claiming, we know you're from God. And John twelve forty two says, Many, even of the rulers, believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. Just like the blind man was when he, when he professed 
Christ. So you can see why, why, why Mark, Matthew, and Luke would omit a name, but John, when he's writing much later, possibly after Mary has already died and doesn't need to worry about um, being labeled uh, a Christian, why John would say her name. Now, let's go back to the meal at Simon's house. So Jesus is reclining at the table. He's eating and he's conversing with the 12. Presumably, Simon is there. Simon the ex-leper is there. Lazarus, according to John, Lazarus is there. There are possibly others. Martha, as I said, she is busy uh, serving. That's what she does. She's a, she's a busy body. Mary has a special service. Mary has a very special service on her mind. And this is a service that will express gratitude. It will express love. It will express selflessness. It will express worship. It will express sacrifice. And these are all things that I'm going to have to, uh, we're going to have to divide this text and come back and look at it in more detail next week. But this week I'm going to try to, I am going to try to touch on the fact that her, her service, her gesture expresses her faith. I think that in, in light of what's going on in this gospel at this point, that is the most remarkable. And I'll, we'll get to that in a, in a minute. So this special service requires her to come with a very very special gift. Verse 3 tells us that she is she's carrying a what? In the middle, uh, middle of the verse, an alabaster vial. Now, what's alabaster? Alabaster is a is a stone. It is semi-transparent, meaning you can kind of see through it a little bit, but not not very well. Light will will shine through it. Um, it was made into jewelry, it was made into pottery, and in this case, it was crafted into a long-necked flask. And a stone crafted into a container like this was used to, to, to safeguard and to hold very costly, very precious perfumes and fragrant oils. And as Mark tells us, this fragrant oil is very costly. What, what, what is it? What, what, is he, what does he call it? It is a very, that the alabaster vial is, uh, has very costly perfume of pure nard. Now, nard, also called spike nard, has been and is even still today greatly treasured and valued for its smell and medical pur- purposes. And I'm, it's really unfortunate that Bethany's not here today because she could, maybe she could uh, verify, confirm or deny some of these claims. According to Mercola.com, spikenard has biological, cognitive, psychological, and neurological benefits. What kind of benefits, I heard Ben ask. Thank you for asking, Ben. Let me tell you. It prevents liver damage, improves learning and memory. It It helps manage stress. It helps fight depression, regulate diabetes, it has anti-convulsive and anti-arrhythmic properties, which helps with heart and helps uh, uh, fight uh, hysteria. Uh, it fosters hair growth. Charlie, get some nard. It fosters hair growth and it rejuvenates black hair, thick, rich black hair. It helps regulate digestion and urinary issues and uh, womanly issues. Uh, it can treat skin conditions like eczema, uh, skin inflammation, psoriasis, and sores. Now, I don't know how much of the ancient world 
knew about the medicinal properties. I don't know if they, how many of those things they claimed nard could or couldn't do, but it was valued for its medicinal properties. Um, beyond all that, it smelled really good. It, uh, I actually ordered a vial, and I will, um, it is a very little, little, little vial. It's like 0.037 ounces, and I'll let you know what it smells like. The description says it, it has a sweet, basalmic, earthy scent. I have no idea what that smells like. It's okay? Okay, minerally. Okay, so, so it does a lot of stuff, and it smells really good. Now, oils can be, can be diluted so that they last longer, and that was often done with, with perfumes. But Mark tells us this vial contained diluted nard, pure nard, Bernard, pure nard. Okay, so it's not, it's not diluted. It is not watered down. This is the pure stuff. And John tells us in verse 3 that it was a pound. It was a Roman pound, which means about 12 ounces. Roughly equivalent in our uh, measurements would be about a pint. Um, just to show you, even today, how how expensive this is, um, the the going rate on Amazon, which is where you can get the cheapest anything ever now, for one fluid ounce, a hundred and thirty dollars. The one I ordered is much, 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 much smaller. <laughs> so, think about this with. $130 for, a flu, for one fluid ounce. That is with the benefits of, moder, of modern mass production, modern mass transportation. Imagine how much the, the price was jacked up because the, the nard had to be packaged, proce, processed, packaged, and packed onto the back of a camel and had to make the 3,744 miles from the Himalayas or India. It, this is where nard came from. 3,744 3, miles to Israel. If, let's just say a brand spanking new camel can go about 15 miles a day, that's about, that's about 250 days traveling. Sorry, no two-day Amazon Prime for Nard in the old world. So you can see, do you see why it's so stinking expensive? Now, Mark doesn't put a price tag on the nard in verse 3, but the disciples do in verse 5. And they, where they, they, they say, and this is really an outburst, this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii. Now, that is, that is bottom value. That is the minimum value. If you, need to, if, if you are in a bind and you took this and you went out into the street and you tried to sell it, the lowest you're going to get is 300 denarii. How much is a denarii? A denarii was, was the average day laborer's wages. 300, if you, if you include taking one day off for the Sabbath, this is approximately, or the bottom value that you could get, which means you could get probably a lot more, but the least you would get would be whatever you would make, whatever the common person made in an entire year of working. How much do you, how much do you, Keep this to yourself, but how much do you make in a year? Do you have the figure in your head? Now, when you read this, 
when you read this passage and you see this vial, this alabaster vial of pure nard, put that figure, however big it is, put that figure on this vial and watch, watch what she does with it. And we're not, we're not told how she got this. We, we, maybe she bought it with her own money. Her family could have been wealthy. Perhaps it was given to her as a gift. Perhaps it was a, an heirloom that's been passed down from generation to generation. We're, we're, we aren't told, and we can only speculate how she came to possess it, but she possesses it now. And whatever the case, it is a near priceless, precious possession that she comes out to where Jesus is reclining. Now, look what she does with it. Verse, uh, last phrase Verse 3, she broke the vial and poured it on her head. Why would she do that? Well, with this vial, uh, it was a long, narrow flask, and it had a very narrow spout at the end. Why does it have a very narrow spout? Well, with something as valuable as this, you didn't want to oopsie trip and spill it, and there goes 300 denarii of precious oil on the floor. So the bottle was designed with this incredibly narrow spout so that when you, when you tip it over, just the littlest tiny drop comes out, and it will come out precisely where you want it to. I have a bottle of soy sauce that I got from Safeway that has the same feature. The way it's designed, you turn it upside down, it's like an IV drip. You unscrew it, you turn it upside down, drip. Drip. And if you, if you swing it with all your might, you can get a, a little bit bigger of a squirt out. So that's kind of what this is like. But what does Mary want to do? She wants to anoint Jesus. She wants to consecrate Jesus with this pure, undiluted, sweet, balsamic, earthy-smelling perfume. And to give... The full measure of her gesture to him, she can do one of all things. She can either stand there shaking it like a ketchup bottle over Jesus until her arm falls off, which really isn't graceful or dignified. She could do that, or what else could she do? Break it. Break that little, narrow, fine-tip dispenser so that the nard can flow out freely and unhindered onto Jesus' head, and that's what she does. Now, I recognize the irony that we're having fellowship night this week, and I can assure you that I will not dab oil on your head when you come into my house. That would be, that would be odd. But that, this was something that was done. It was a perfectly acceptable way to, to, to honor somebody, to, to, to show gratitude or appreciation or honor to somebody in Israel. And what does David say in Psalm 23, 5? You anoint my head with, with oil. And the idea is it could be medicinal oil, but it was, it's probably a fragrant oil. And then in um, you know, presuming one had the means, it was actually a faux pas not to do this which is what uh, Jesus remarks to Simon the Pharisee, not Simon the leper, but Simon the Pharisee in Luke 7, 46. So it is not out of the ordinary for Jesus to be dabbed or anointed with this fragrant oil, but what is out of the ordinary is to be anointed like this, in this manner. This is a remarkable gesture of honor on Mary's part. And John twelve three adds that, she did, wasn't content just to anoint his head. She anointed his feet 
and began wiping his, wiping his feet with her hair, which 1 Corinthians 11.15 says is the glory of a woman, is her hair. She is taking her glory and cleaning Jesus' feet with it. And I, kind of, I, I seem to recall Jesus uh, using the gesture of cleaning feet as a, as, a, as a symbol or gesture to serve another person. What a remarkable thing that Mary is doing here. And John says the result of, of her doing this, of anointing him from head to toe, is that the whole house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Those of you with little ones, have you ever, you ever had them get a hold of an of a, of a aerosol spray and they just unleash the entire can of Febreze in a room? That's what this was. Only this was sweet, balsamic, earthy scent. Now, I'm running out of time here. And there are a number of features that we can look at in Mary's gesture to Jesus. And we're going to look at them next week, but there is one that I want to cover today. And that is, I think, what I think is the most remarkable is that Mary's gesture expressed her faith. Sure, we can see that it was a, a, it was a very valuable, it was a very sacrificial gesture. We can see that. But I want you to see that Mary's gesture expressed her faith. What is remarkable about this woman is that unlike everybody else in the room, she seems to have understood what Jesus has been saying plainly all along. Seems, she seems to be the only one who has had open ears to hear what Jesus has been saying. What has he been saying over and over and over again? I am going to Jerusalem and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders will take me and they will hand me over and I will suffer and I will be killed. And all, it seems that all the men can do, all the, all the disciples can do, it seems that all they can do is rebuke him and say, oh, Lord, may it never be. This is, that is such a shock to them. It is such a scandal. It doesn't fit their, uh, it doesn't fit their worldview. It doesn't fit their narrative. It doesn't fit how they uh, have come to believe and anticipate everything uh, to come to pass. And so they, they've written it, his words off as lunacy. They just don't have the gumption to say it to his face but they clearly don't believe him. And chapter after chapter, he said this. Uh, first in 8.31, then in 9.12, then in 9.31, then in 10.33 and 34, again in verse 38, again in verse 45. And every single time, it's been a stumbling block. They don't know what to do with those weird, lun- weird crazy words of Jesus. They don't know what to do with it. They simply don't believe it. And yet we see in the totality of Scripture that Mary is one who has committed herself to sitting at his feet, listening to his words. And she is one who has committed herself to listening to Jesus when it seems that everyone else has committed themselves to talking. When Peter and James and John are not listening because they're talking, Mary is listening, and she is believing. She seems to be the only one who has gotten it. And maybe you'll ask, well, how do you know that? 
are, are, are you just, uh, do you just want to think highly of her? You're, are you just putting in between the lines and the white space that, that she understood? Well, look at verse 8. What does Jesus say about her gesture? She has anointed my body beforehand for the, yeah. Anointing a body with spices like this was what you did after they died. Because you know what happens after four days? They stinketh. You would embalm and you would wrap, you would, you would just anoint the body with pure spices so that when you would visit the tomb and mourn and grieve and, and reminisce and, and think about that person and mourn for that person, the the uh, the spices wouldn't the the the, the decay of se- uh, the scent of decay wouldn't overpower your senses. The spices would allow you to remain there, and it was a way to show honor. Most people did that. Most people anoint the dead when they're dead. Jesus is doing it before he is dead. Why is she do- Why is she doing that? Because he has said he is going to die, and she believes him. I think, and I'm sure you could appreciate how pleasing in the midst of these men who are so stinking dull, who are so painfully slow to believe the word of the Lord, here is one who, who is actually listening. Every teacher in this room can appreciate when their students actually listen. Every parent in this room can appreciate when their children listen. I'm sure every one of you have relationships where you have appreciated that person when they are listening. In the midst of these dull men, Mary listened and Mary believed. So I want to leave this with you, this this probing question. What would it look like for you, for you to stop talking and like Mary to sit at Jesus' feet and to listen to him? to simply listen and to simply believe? Are there, is there an area of your life that you have not yet surrendered to him? Is there, are there words that, you, that he has said that you have not yet received and believed? Are there promises that he has said that, he, that you have not yet trusted in? Are you even spending enough time in the word to know what his words are and the promises that he has given you? Will you, as you leave today, will you, like Mary, commit yourself to be one who is sitting at the feet of Jesus and to simply receive what he has to say and to simply believe? I would implore you, that is a worthwhile thing to do. Amen? Sit at his feet and trust Lord, we thank you for this beautiful narrative that encaptures this gracious, amazing, marvelous gesture of worship and adoration and sacrifice and love and affection and gratitude and faith. How marvelous it is that she, that Mary did this thing, acting out in faith, because of the words that you said, and not giving a, a moment's thought to what, 
what others would think of her. She was only concerned about you. I pray, Lord, that you would help us likewise to be far more concerned about your thoughts of us than what men and women have to say about us. Give us ears to hear like her. Give us faith to believe like her.